few months now working through this uh, subject matter of Christ and culture and uh, the relationship that the Christian has with the world and how we, uh, how we work through um, uh, all of the details of being Christians in a broken, fallen, darkened world. Um, so uh, what I want to do this morning is uh, very quickly, I'm just going to hit on all the main kind of things we've talked about to get that in our head, and then I have a few final concluding uh, thoughts um, for this. The first thing we identified as we were working through uh, this class was the types of culture. Um, and we identified three different types of culture uh, that exist really in any society. Uh, what were the three types of culture that we said exist? Okay, pop culture, and that is here today and gone tomorrow, right? It's uh, the kind of um, one-hit wonder type stuff of the world. All right, what else? What's the other kind of culture? What's that? High culture, good. So this is, uh, uh, this is like... Um, classical music and um, fine art and fine wine and all of these sorts of things that we identify with with high culture uh, some of it uh, some of it good and beautiful uh, some of it strange and um, off-putting uh, depends where we're looking for that but uh, high culture uh, is another type and uh, generally the idea with high culture is that there is a certain uh, class of people who enjoy it. Um, not necessarily always the case, but generally how it's viewed and understood. What's the third type of culture? Folk culture. Good. And what are the characteristics of folk culture? Okay. Yep, very regional in many ways, so what folk culture is here may differ from another place in the world, absolutely, even another part of your own country. Kenny, did you have? Yep, good, yep, so it's tied to family traditions and, um, again, certain types of music and certain things, um, even um, cultural traditions that a uh, certain community of people uh, delight in and partake in. and these. So the idea of folk culture, though, is this is something that is being handed down from one generation to the next. So while pop culture comes and goes, high culture sort of uh, hovers above everything uh, among a certain class of people, if you will. Folk culture is uh, sort of the trade uh, between uh, people of, uh, of family or community. Um, and interesting, you know, something I've thought of through all of this, we didn't mention um, early on, is our culture, really, if you look at it on the whole, you see pockets of all of this, but what is the drift really towards? Whereas maybe 50, 100 years ago, you could see a very strong grip on folk culture, but what is the drift towards, really, in our American culture? Yeah, pop culture, no doubt about it. And you see that more in big cities, 
Um, it's very transient, come and go. What's the latest, the hottest? But uh, those, you know, big cities foster ideas, universities and all that, and that gets out into the suburbs, and there you go. Then it becomes part of life for everybody. And that is the drift of our culture. And um, so in many ways, that affects how we think about ministry and how we think about the church. And you can see in many ways the things that uh, the church, when I say the church, I mean uh, primarily evangelicalism in our country, um, why so many things are done the way they're done. Because it's being informed oftentimes not by Scripture uh, and not by necessarily even folk culture, but rather pop culture. Because um, whatever their intentions are, well-meaning or not, the idea is that we need to relate to people on a level that they are willing to relate to. And so pop culture has a very strong influence on our daily lives and um, sometimes unknowingly to uh, the way that we even go about uh, coming to the Lord uh, with his people. So we talked also about four ways that we as Christians um, approach culture. And uh, we wanted to narrow it down to one of these ways, and then we spent the rest of our time talking about how to do that thing. Um, so what were the four, appro- four ways that Christians have sought to approach the culture that we live in? What was the first one? To reject it altogether, to, um, to pull away, to isolate ourselves, to have nothing to do with it. And we looked very, uh, we saw very easily that that's certainly not what the Lord had in mind. His own, uh, the Lord Jesus prayed for us in John 17, uh, saying, I do not pray that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them in it. And as they are there, that you protect them and watch over them and that you're glorified through them. So rejecting the culture is not, uh, is not the answer. What was the second one? What's that? Okay, so to embrace it completely and to not ask any questions of it, to just dive in headfirst. And if it's going on, God is sovereign and we'll just love it and adapt to it and everything's great. Well, that is the approach of every uh, liberal de jour. And uh, they will uh, find all sorts of ways to adopt the culture and to, um, uh, to adopt their practices that would match the culture. And that's certainly not what the Lord calls us to either. He calls us to live lives that are distinct, uh, lives that are uh, in many ways very separate from what the world is and is doing. And so we have to keep that in mind as well. So we have this call to remain in the world and not reject it. Um, But we also have this call to a life that is distinguished by holiness and godliness and faithfulness. Um, So there's a tension here that we have to maintain. And so that sort of informs the last two approaches. What was the third one? Okay, to redeem or transform culture. Um, Many Christians have... The approach that they believe uh, that our task as Christians is to, uh, to transform and redeem everything around us. So we find ways to redeem uh, film and music and the workplace and our communities and sort of um, uh, 
Christianize the things around us. Um, and there are things about that that are um, appealing. However, that does come from a very, um, uh, it's a very, uh, it's defined very much by uh, some people's view of how things are going to end up when it's all said and done. Um, so we, we came to the conclusion of the fourth idea as we approach culture, and what is that? Good. To live faithfully as Christians within the culture. Not rejecting it, not wholly embracing it, not with the primary goal of transforming it, but living faithfully within it. That was where we came to. And then we spent the rest of our time working through what that looks like. And so one of the things we did was uh, to look at some of the philosophical ideas of, uh, of the days when uh, the scriptures were being written, uh, some of the things that um, the Apostle Paul would have very much been, and I think can be proved from scriptures, interacting with, um, the ideas of the people um, and uh, the, the culture. So we saw some examples of how Paul himself encountered and dealt with the ideas of the culture. He wasn't talking over them or beyond them or um, um, around them. He was talking to them, and he was using um, illustrations from the world they lived in to bring them to a true understanding of the one true and living God. We dealt with some biblical principles uh, for life in this world. What are some of the biblical principles we addressed? If we're going to live faithfully in our culture, what are some principles that need to be applied? I want to see if anyone remembers. Hopefully we're applying these things. Excellent. Yep, that everything we encounter, everything we want to do, everything we want to say, that we are considering it uh, in relationship to the Word of God. What does God say about this? Does He forbid it? If He forbids it, then it's forbidden. Does He permit it? Yes. Okay, if so, um, how do I go about that? Is it permissible? Yes. Uh, But then there's other questions I have to ask of that as well. Um, so that's one of the principles we certainly dealt with is um, looking at everything through the lens of God's word. Um, good. What else? Does that help? Some of you guys take notes. I think you'd take them out by now. Remember we talked about God's purposes in creation. We talked about man's responsibilities in creation. Um, We talked about how God calls us to understand the world around us and what the world is, where it's headed, what's going on, and all of these things. Um, Does that help anybody? How does God view the world? How does he explain the world from the scriptures? What's that? Okay, it belongs to him. It was created by him. What's happening with it? Okay, good. So we have this uh, very clear indication from the very uh, beginning of Scripture that we live in a world that is not what God initially intended it to be, right? 
And as a result of that, there is brokenness, there is sin, and it all rests under a curse. Man's life, woman's life, and the life of all the rest of creation resides under a curse. And so as a result, we have trials, we have difficulties, we have suffering, we have things we must endure. So uh, things like difficulties in our work, um, something we are very blessed in many ways to not have to struggle with, but the majority of the world spends every single day worrying about and wondering what their next meal is going to be because the very ground is cursed. Crops don't grow. Once you eat all the animals in your land, uh, you're very dependent on those crops um, or some, uh, some very heroic hunting efforts. So we saw that the brokenness of the world that we live in is going to, in many ways, challenge us to have to think all the more about this idea of how do the Scriptures call me to uh, these things in this life? Because before me every day are temptations, before me every day are trials, before me every day are, are uh, different ways that I haven't thought about yet of sinning. Now, there's nothing new under the sun, as the Scriptures tell us, but maybe for us as individuals... Uh, we, uh, we move beyond perhaps some pernicious sin in our life only to find ourselves confronted with yet another. And so, while we saw the condition of the world, we looked at man's purpose within the world, which is what, by the way? What is man's purpose in the midst of all of it? Okay, to glorify God through what means? How do we do that? Okay, obeying his word, enjoying him, worshiping him, talking about him, right? Delighting in the things he's given to us, giving thanks to him in all of our circumstances, whether they're good or bad uh, from our perspective, trusting him that all of his promises will come to pass. All of these things bring glory to God in the midst of a broken, troubled world. Now, we also looked at the fact that uh, culture itself is not an unqualified evil. There are things that we look to and say are, are, are good in many ways uh, because uh, God, by his common grace, has given them to us for our good, for our benefit. Uh, something just on the way here this morning, uh, Felicia and I were talking about, is um, how different even in our very short young lives, very young lives, um, has been that um, when we were kids, it was, it was odd that uh, our families didn't really go to church, but still there was something about uh, Sunday that was different. Now, for my father, it was to watch football games on TV, so all the yard work was done on Saturday for that reason. But we still, we didn't go anywhere, we didn't do anything, because there was this general concept of that day being something special. Uh, it had nothing to do with the Lord, I assure you of that. But it was determined by the culture around us, right? Uh, most of the stores and everything else were closed. Uh, you couldn't just go out and do whatever. Kids' games weren't scheduled on Sundays. 
Uh, there was a general idea that that wasn't going to be the case. Uh, we don't play on Sundays. All of those sorts of things were going on, and so the temptation to engage in those things just wasn't as prevalent. But um, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, one of the sure signs that the common grace of God is being removed from a culture is when Sunday is just another day of the week. And I think we see that uh, becoming very prevalent in our culture. Um, And not just in uh, uh, the world around us, but even within the church. And uh, and so churches have sought to... um, to make adjustments to match that. So we have services on Saturday nights or in the middle of the week or just make it when you can sort of ideas um, instead of perhaps looking at it all and determining uh, has God commanded this of us? If so, how do we live faithfully within all of this? What is the distinction that needs to be made in terms of uh, what we will and won't do as faithful Christians in this world? Um, So, We talked a lot about that. Something very distinct about the Christian life in our culture is uh, how we understand the law of God applying to our daily and weekly lives. We discussed uh, Christian liberty, and we applied principles of liberty. And we spent several weeks on that, a very important principle, something the Puritans said was of second most importance in the whole of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura was primary, uh, along with justification by faith, and then was the idea of Christian liberty, uh, that the consciences of Christians were not bound by the laws of man. Um, And so we we spent uh, uh, some time dealing with that. Then we looked at this um, principle of the kingdom, that we live in a kingdom of this world, but we are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. And specifically, how the church relates to that. As Christians, as we gather together to worship the Lord, we're coming together to participate in the redemptive kingdom. We are participating, as I prayed earlier, with all of the saints of heaven and earth to worship the Lord God. And so in the midst of all of the brokenness, we have a time and a place and a people to come together with to participate in all that's been going on since the beginning of time as Jesus is being worshipped by all that he has redeemed, by all the angels and heavenly hosts above. And it's, it is this worshipful outpost in the midst of uh, the brokenness and all of the uh, trials and temptations that we face day by day. So we participate in the redemptive kingdom as we come together with God's people. And particularly in a special way as we come together on the Lord's Day. And then we got into, and this is uh, where we'll uh, work through our conversation this morning. The, the, we talked about how we look at culture, but then what are the countercultural things that come about in the Christian life? And the last one we discussed was that we believe in a forgiveness of one another that transcends the idea of justice. Now, God has created all mankind in his image, and as a result, all of mankind has a sense of justice. And nobody needs to be convinced of this, and you see it in uh, two-year-olds who uh, 
see their older sibling get something they didn't get, and what is their response? That's not fair, right? I didn't have to teach what fairness is. It's simply uh, something that wells up inside of them. That's not fair. I want that. That's supposed to be for me as well. If they get it, I should get it too. So that's the idea of justice. And in many, many ways, justice is good and right and holy and righteous, and we should desire justice. However, the Lord calls us to a forgiveness that transcends justice. Remember Jesus' words when he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what is Jesus's, uh, what is he saying, so that's the sort of the physical ramifications of justice, but what does he say with regard to the heart of the Christian in the Sermon on the Mount? How does the Christian respond uh, to uh, being wronged? What's that? Good. If they ask you to go one mile, go with them too. If they Hit you on one cheek, turn the other, right? It's this idea of going above and beyond, receiving the wrong, taking the wrong on yourself, offering forgiveness, seeking to restore the relationship, and moving beyond without demanding justice. Because ultimately, we trust that justice is found in the Lord. And in the end, vengeance will be his. So we have a forgiveness that we're called to that transcends justice. Our ultimate goal is not to see all things here and now made right, but our ultimate goal is to see that God is glorified through our actions even when we are wronged. This is Paul's point when he's talking to the Corinthians and saying, why in the world would you bring your brother or sister before the civil magistrates to sort out your issues? Isn't it better, instead of having a pagan judge decide what needs to happen, that you would just suffer the wrong and move on? Because in the end, God will make it right. And if we're dealing with brothers and sisters, we're praying that uh, the church has all that's necessary to help sort through those things, and, uh, and God has commanded the way. Lee, did you have something to add there? Good. Yeah, it's this continual, ongoing approach to all of life that I'm willing to, um, to take wrong. Now, again, that doesn't mean justice doesn't matter, and there are times when we need to pursue that. However, there's a certain heart behind that. I'm not seeking an eye for an eye. I'm seeking to be made right in this relationship with this person and to see to it that God is glorified through it all. All right, so what I want to talk about this morning, uh, this will have to be very quick, is, is two things. And one of them is the most important of all countercultural approaches to this world that the Christian can take. The first one's this, though. We're called to a generosity that transcends scarcity. Anyone who has ever studied economics on a micro or macro level has learned the fundamental principle of scarcity. So, the idea is that certain things happen in a marketplace when 
the resources begin to run out, right? There are certain things you can predict. There are certain things you can expect to happen when, uh, when the resources run dry. Uh, so you see things like inflation. Um, or you see things like bankruptcy. Uh, as a result of that, you see things like revolution. All this stuff is uh, kind of basic economic principles. Um, but the Lord calls the church to something very different. And it's an ethic of scarcity that doesn't constrain the church. When the church sees uh, times of poverty, times of scarcity, it doesn't keep us from being able to do the very thing we're called to do. And in fact, in most cases throughout the history of the world, it's in times of scarcity that the church has prospered the most. Uh, we see that in world missions today. Um, in the redemptive kingdom, for example, we see this through the scriptures. The impoverished widow who gives two copper coins. What does Jesus say of her? That she's foolish because she's not using her money wisely? No, what does he say? What's that? She was more blessed. She's given far more than all of the others. Well, her two copper coins weren't really worth anything in the common kingdom. But before the eyes of God and her faithful heart, she'd given far more than anyone else because, excuse me, she has a generosity that transcends scarcity. It seems irrational to the world. Um, Christians cheerfully desire to give beyond their means. A great example of this in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul uh, is talking to them about the Christians in Macedonia. And he said, when I went to them, they had not, these people were dirt poor. They had nothing. And I came to them, and I told them of the need. Paul was going around taking up a collection for a need of the, probably the church in Jerusalem. And he said, in their extreme poverty and in their abundance of joy... They gave. And after they gave, they begged him that they could give even more. And the picture there is that Paul is saying, well, you've already given so much and you have nothing. Don't worry about it. I'll go to the other churches and see. And they're coming back to him saying, no, we want to give more. And so, again, this is something the world looks at and says, that's a foolish way to approach this whole thing. But Paul actually praises them. Why? Because the Lord loves the generosity of his people. But what's the heart behind that? What is the heart behind being able to be that generous in our scarcity, in our poverty, to give to the needs of the saints? What are we doing if we're able to do that? Good. We're trusting the Lord. I trust that the Lord is going to care for me because he has told me he has. And he will. And he always will. He says, Don't, doesn't the Lord know that a sparrow falls in the middle of the forest? Doesn't he, he realize he has his eye on even that? You are created in God's image. You're one of his children. Don't you think that he's going to care for you far more than even that? He has the very hairs on your head numbered. And so the call is, trust the Lord. 
And as you're generous, you trust that he will continue to provide. It's not a call to recklessness. I'm not being generous uh, to myself. Let's just be clear there. Uh, It's not a generosity of getting all that I want, and I'm being very generous by serving a saint, namely me. Um, No, it's a generosity to those in need. And as I'm doing that, the Lord continues to pour on blessing and providing for me. Go ahead. Yeah. Great. We are called to trust in a Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He will provide for his people. And I think uh, many of us can give testimony to the fact that when we've been most generous, the Lord has been most generous to us in return. Realizing blessings that we never knew existed because we have simply sought to trust him and be faithful. Well, last thing I want to address, and this is most important. You can take the last three months' worth of Sunday school classes and all that we've talked about and hopefully principles that we've taken and have been able to think through and begin to apply more uh, faithfully. But all of those without this are meaningless. You probably know where I'm going with this. It's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. I can give all that I have. I can even give my body to be burned, but if I have not love, I've given nothing. It's useless. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that looks like a whole lot of different things and a whole lot of different ways. One way is something that has always been fascinating to me. Um, In 362 AD, a man named Julian the Apostate, he wrote a letter to the high priest of Galatia. And Julian was called the apostate for a very good reason. Uh, He was an evil, wicked man. He hated the church. And um, if you read a lot of ancient literature, the Christians are often called atheists because they reject the, the, the Greek gods, uh, the pantheon of gods. So they call them atheists, or um, when they're trying to be nice, they call them Galileans um, because obviously they're following uh, Jesus and his ministry. So Julian the Apostate wrote a letter, and here's what he says. For it is disgraceful... When no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. His point was, the Christians are taking care of each other, and they're so well taken care of that now they're turning and taking care of our people. And our people are going to start to see that, and they're going to start looking at what's going on in this church and want something to do with it. And so he goes on in the letter to describe how shameful that is and how we need to get out and encourage, uh, you know, through the government and the people that, um, that they need to start doing this sort of thing that the Christians are doing. It's a fascinating piece of history. 
Because what it explains is that even in the fourth century now, we're several centuries removed from what we read in Acts chapter 2, the same thing is going on. That there is a tremendous generosity that even the pagans were being cared for by the church. Their needs were being met, and there was, in that sense, no poor among them. The church was cared for first, and then the community around them. This is at the heart of what God calls us to. We will be known by our love for one another. And by one another, yes, primarily in the church, But husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we are called to love our enemies and to pray for them. Who does that leave us to be able to not love? Nobody. We have an obligation to love all people, regardless of their standing with us, even as our enemies. And so at the heart of our interaction with culture is a Christian's call to love, to love one another and to love those around us. And if we do that faithfully, continually, the world takes notice of that. They may mock it for a time, but when the world is in greatest need, who do they turn to? The church. That's why America has institutions of higher learning, That's why America has hospitals. That's why America has schools. All of these things were started by the church, all for the good of their communities because they were doing this very thing, loving their neighbor. So I hope that, we're out of time, I hope that we think about that as we continue to think through, uh, hopefully we're always thinking about, how are we living faithfully as Christians in this world? At the heart of it, the dead center of it all, is that I'm reminded once again of this call. I can give all I have, I can give my body to be burned, but if I have not love, I've given nothing. It's a worthless pursuit. So let's be the kind of people the Lord calls us to be, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to live faithfully as God's people in this world around us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time. We're grateful for the last several weeks uh, that you have given us to talk about um, how you call us to live in this world as your people. We pray, Lord, that you remind us of these principles, that we continue to think through them and work them out day by day. Most of all, Lord, I pray this morning that you help us to live countercultural lives faithfully in this world, embracing what we can embrace, rejecting what we must reject, but in all of it, giving praise and glory and honor where it is all due in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we do it all with great love because we have been first loved by Christ. Lord, prepare our hearts now as we gather for worship. May it all be to your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.